millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Grand Challenges from Nature. Grand Challenges is our roundtable series in which a panel of experts take on the biggest challenges facing society and ask what scientists, governments, charities, even you and I should be doing to try and solve them. I'm Kerry Smith and in this episode, food security. This is the sound of around 2,000 protesters in the northern Egyptian city of Mahala, recorded by Al Jazeera News. The video shows them throwing bricks and firecrackers at riot police. It's April 2008. The price of food has been rising for months and wages are stagnant. People can't afford to feed themselves. We have to express our frustration. The prices of all foodstuffs have been escalating. Rice, cereals, meat, everything. People can't even afford feeding themselves anymore. In late 2007, drought in grain-producing countries coincided with a rise in the cost of fertilisers and food transportation in turn caused by a bump in the price of oil. Together, these factors caused a dramatic increase in food prices around the world. Here's another report from Egypt a few months after the April riots. Government figures show that food prices have risen more than 23% this year, resulting in markets like these, once bustling with customers, now almost deserted. News cameras in other countries captured similar struggles, particularly in places where a large proportion of people's income is spent on food. CNN reported from riots in Haiti, including this one in April. Shops looted, gas stations destroyed and government offices mangled. Many of these people say they can barely afford to eat. According to the UN, world food prices have risen 45% in the last nine months. The riots prompted the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund and the United Nations to pull together to alleviate the crisis by providing aid to badly affected countries like Haiti. Since then, there haven't been food riots on the same scale. But for many, growing and affording enough food is a daily struggle, particularly in the poorest countries in Africa, where prices continue to rise above the record highs of 2008. Time now to discuss the causes of food insecurity of these riots because three experts join me to outline the major challenges we face in growing enough food and getting it to those who need it. With me here in the Nature Studio in London, I have Gordon Conway, Professor of International Development at Imperial College London. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you. Also joining us from the John Innes Centre in Norwich, UK, is Professor of Plant Biology, Giles Aldroyd. Hello. And on the line from Dakar in Senegal, we have Usman Badian, who is Africa Director for the International Food Policy Research Institute. Hi, Usman. Hi. 
Happy to join you. Welcome, everybody. And let's start by getting a handle on the challenge here. I should say that we'll be focusing on African nations in many of our examples because they illustrate so many of the challenges wrapped up in delivering food security. Gordon, the phrase food security assumes that right now food supply isn't necessarily secure for everyone. Could you give us an idea of the problem we're facing? Well, food security goes up and down. At the moment, we have about 200 million people in Africa who are chronically hungry. And there's a growing population, so that's going to get worse. One of the problems, of course, is that what causes the actual riots or whatever may be due to political forces, it may be due to economic forces, it may be due to climate. It can be many of these causes, and in different countries, it varies considerably. What is true is that food prices at the moment are relatively low, but in Africa, they're not. So if you live in uh, Kenya, for example, food prices are rising and they're extremely volatile. So this is a grand and a global challenge, but everywhere the challenge looks different. Yes. We know, in a sense, crudely what to do, but it's a question of getting it done. Usman, you must see this. um, You're in Dakar at the moment. You must see this process writ small in some of the countries that that you are responsible for. Those challenges that God has talking about how we go from what we know to what we need to do. Often those are systemic issues. We may know what kind of technology might work, but having a technology delivery system to bring them to the farmers, especially the millions of dispersed small farmers to use, can be quite daunting. But the overriding story uh, across Africa and the countries I work with is that a lot of positive change has taken place over the last 10, 15 to 20 years. The problem Africa is struggling now is the two to three decades of stagnation between the 70s almost the way to the 90s when agriculture almost collapsed while population kept on growing. From what you're saying, it sounds as if actually Many of the problems that are the most pernicious are not necessarily to do with the basic science. However, we are nature, and that's where we're going to begin. Giles Oldroyd, from a from a kind of plant biology perspective, I mean, what we're doing, trying to do here in, in many cases is just grow more, better plants. What do we already know and what can we already, what have we already successfully implemented? So, I mean, there's a number of examples in, of where you're seeing some technological improvements in agriculture. Um, for instance, the BT cotton that's been introduced into Burkina Faso that's increasing yields but reducing insecticide use. And I think that sort of technology and also breeding, improved breeding of cassava, of the a lot of the crops that are that smallholder farmers are growing, they haven't actually been improved genetically generally. So very little breeding, very little genomics uh, knowledge. But that's really changed. I mean, I think in the last decade, we've seen a real transformation in our knowledge of these crops. And I mean, that's driven a lot by the new technologies and new sequencing technologies that just makes it trivial in many ways to sequence these these crops. So we now have the genomes of many of these crops, or certainly the major ones like cassava and uh, yams and banana, etc. So I think there's a lot of potential just on very simple technologies like plant breeding to improve some of the yields or the potential yields that these crops can deliver. And then, of course, there's a, a lot of potential, in my opinion, for GM technology 
technologies, which really I think it's it's a bit of a tragedy that they're they're not impacting at all on African agriculture at the moment, except for very few examples like the GM cotton. Why is that? I think well for a number of reasons. Firstly, companies are not tend- tending to invest in crops for Africa heavily. Um, uh, the, the farmers have little buying power, so there's, uh, it really needs charitable, mostly the charitable sector to, to invest to see those products being developed. And then, of course, there's a political issue. And I think the, the GM um, battleground has actually shifted from the first world to the developing world. And a lot of the NGOs are working very aggressively in Africa to turn governments and people against GM food. How does it feel as someone who works on the kind of basic biology of plants to see that you can make these improvements but not push them down the pipeline? I, I feel it's a total tragedy. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm in the business because I would like to see improved productivity in a more sustainable fashion. And I think many of those views are held by the same NGOs who also call me the evil scientist, the person who's going to deliver environmental catastrophes, when actually I'm trying to achieve entirely the opposite. I would like to see a far more sustainable, productive agricultural system. And I think rather than sticking my head in the sand and pretending that the technologies of 200 years ago can deliver that, I think we've got to open our eyes and and really focus on what really can deliver sustainable and increased productivity for, for the poorest farmers in the world. Uh, Gordon, you, la- you laughed bitterly when I asked Giles uh, how he feels about these things making their way down the pipeline. Well, I mean, that's, that's the experience we all have. The need in Africa in particular is for control of pest diseases and weeds. I mean, those problems in Africa are horrendous. You know, I often say the big diseases of Africa are malaria, TB and black cigatoga. And people say, black cigatoga, what's that? Well, it's a disease of bananas. I mean, these diseases that the African farmer wakes up in the morning and looks at his or her field and the field's wiped out. I'm relatively optimistic uh, because there's about half a dozen countries now that are moving towards uh, releasing GM crops. One of the countries that's done an enormous amount is Uganda. Uganda, at the National Agricultural Research Organization, has got about half a dozen crops that have been genetically modified and are growing in the field. And the government is very much behind them. I think we will start to see those uh, being adopted and we will soon start to see gene editing occurring. But GM surely isn't a silver bullet. I mean, no. Usman, are you, are you finding that there are more pressing problems on the ground that even GM wouldn't help you solve? The future of agriculture is going to be highly technological. The questions facing African countries ought not be, do I take or do I leave GMO, but do I have the capacity to harness biotechnology to help solve the problems that African agriculture is facing, i.e., do we have the laboratories, do we have the expertise, do we have the regulatory environment to safely develop and deploy biotechnology? It's not just for food security and producing food that is important. It's also for these countries to be able to compete globally. West Africa has been for many years a very competitive place of producing cotton. In the early 2000s, West African farmers could sell cotton and make money. They were more productive than per hectare 
then China, and then India. But because of biotechnology used in India and China, West African producers are losing their competitive edge. So I think uh, if we would take the passion out of the GMO uh, and look at a little bit more uh, the scientific uh, and the facts around GMO, I think we'll probably make an advance. So often the GM debate is totally polarized. That is as if it's an all or nothing. And it absolutely isn't. It's just one of many factors in that you have to apply to improving agriculture. But at the same time, if you consider a smallholder maize farmer, they've got everything stacked against them. Small amounts of land, no machinery, no inputs, poor quality seed. And they have to compete on a global market. So as Osman said, you know, the, they, they're not isolated farmers. They still is corn available grown in the US by on huge estates with tractors with all the inputs and on top of that with biotechnology as well and if a farmer in the US can grow maize for cheaper than a farmer in Africa can grow it then you're just undercutting the value of that crop to the African farmer and for something like maize we're seeing maize production around the world is almost I don't know what it is now 50% GM something like this so you know they're they're really competing with a very high-tech crop everywhere else in Africa it's a very low-tech crop. Has the world changed too much to, to expect a kind of second green revolution where there was a lot of investment in agricultural research? And it seemed, I don't know, Gordon, you tell me if you think it actually worked in practice, whether we could do anything like that again. Oh, well, the green revolution certainly worked. I mean, it was, it was a great success story. Uh, India, for the first time, ended up by being able to feed itself. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. But it was... I hate to say this, it was a very simple approach. It was just largely about uh, breeding short-strawed wheat and and rice varieties, which would take up a lot of fertilizer. What we're seeing today is is a green revolution that's beginning to occur, but it's much more complicated. What we need to do is to find ways in which these small farmers can produce high yields in the way that I've described earlier, but then get them to markets. We're involved at the moment with uh, the World Food Programme. The World Food Programme, as you know, provides uh, uh, emergency grain, for example. It's providing it in Syria at the moment, in in Somalia and Yemen and so on. And they want to buy maize in Africa. Instead of just importing all the maize from North America, by buying it in Africa, then it's available uh, and will will stimulate agricultural production in Africa. But the problem is the farmers have got to buy the seed and the fertilizer. And so what we are doing with the World Food Programme is to provide an insurance package that goes with the loan package to the farmers. So the farmers will buy the seed, they'll buy the fertilizer, they'll buy the irrigation or whatever else they need, knowing that if in their area the rains fail or whatever else happens, they will get compensated. And we've got Uh, 150,000 farmers at the moment with a pilot experiment to see how well that works. And it brings lots of different actors together. A big insurance company called Munich Ray is actually providing the insurance for us to make this go forward. We'll know for sure in June when we harvest that it's working. I really really like the, the kind of mirror image you've just painted of this being every farmer's local problem yeah. solved with a very global solution. Right. So you're, you're, not, you're not trying to ignore the global yeah. system that yeah. each little small yeah. holder yeah. Is, a, is a part of, but you're actually trying to leverage it to help yeah. them. Yeah. We're, we're providing information about every five square kilometre. We can do it for the whole of Africa. And we've got, and we've got computers that are doing machine learning and running, running overnight to get us the results. So it's a very sophisticated approach, 
but it's specifically geared at a very simple level to small smallholder farmers. Uh, you, you asked about the potential for a new new green revolution, and, and I'm personally really excited about that potential. I think if you look at the 20th century, it was very much focused on the chemical industry to deliver a lot of the solutions to agriculture. Of course, there was a lot of plant breeding as well, but it's a combination of plant breeding and the chemical industry. And a lot of the issues that we use those chemicals for, whether that's control of insects, control of pests to fertilize the plants. If you look at across the plant kingdom, plants have solved all those problems in the evolution of plants. There's always a plant out there that's resistant to whatever pest you have or whatever disease you have. And I think the 21st century is really going to be the century of biology in agriculture, because I think we've really got the potential to solve all of those problems that we've historically relied on chemistry for. And the big advantage of that is if you put the technology in the seed, and and whether that's biotechnology, whether that's breeding, whether that's gene editing, the seed is in a hugely transportable and reproducible commodity that's really easy to move around a smallholder farming system in contrast to inputs and chemicals, hard for the farmers to get, they're costly and they're dangerous. And you have to apply them at the right levels. And we often see with smallholder farming systems, sometimes they're actually poisoning themselves with the, the chemicals. Unfortunately, at the moment, the farmers who are most benefiting from those technologies are first world, highly developed, wealthy farmers. But actually, the farmers who've got most potential to benefit are smallholder farmers, where the the potential to increase productivity is massive. They're achieving 20% yields. 20%, I mean, the potential to increase productivity is probably greatest in Africa. So it's a huge arable area. This production is incredibly low. And yet we focus so much on increasing maize production in in the US or in Europe as if that's going to solve the food security problem. So I'm super excited about the opportunities and the potential. I think really we're on the cusp of a new green revolution that's a biological revolution rather than a chemical one. So moving agriculture forward is going to depend on new biology then, but also crucially on the way governments act to get that biology and that technology to the right people and places. Right, Usman? So the smallholder agriculture has suffered in Africa for a long time because of the political and the policy environment we had. There were times in many parts of Africa where the government was determining which price a farmer should get, who might or might not buy from her or him, who would export. Those things are a thing of the past now. All 54 countries in Africa have been trying to develop an agenda to boost productivity, competitiveness, and enhance growth in the African uh, agricultural sector. Uh, Those policy gains are not necessarily safe. That's why IFPRI and our partners across Africa are trying to get countries to uh, embrace evidence-based policy. You measure, you track, you benchmark and you know that you're making progress. So I think all those are moving in the right direction, but you have an issue of pace and scale. And that's why we're here really today. How can we do things better, faster, and at scale to reach the millions of smallholder farmers? That, that all sounds great, but can I just rain on everyone's parade for a minute by just saying the words climate change? I'd just like to get your thoughts on how um, that elephant in the room is is going to affect food security going forward. Another another nebulous question. I'm I'm sorry about that. Usman, would you like to go first? Yes, uh, climate change is already having a major impact right here in the current West Africa. 
Senegal has emerged recently as a major exporter of fruits and vegetables uh, to the European Union, invested quite hard uh, to master the quality standards. But what's happening over the last two or three years, the weather is just going really crazy. It's too cold, too long in the year, or you have winds, dry, warm winds at time of the year where the flowering, which has never been the case, I mean, the trees are flowering. It's just they haven't been able to get it right. So it's already affecting uh, uh, agriculture right now. So it's the challenge, and a challenge not just of now, but of the decades to come. Uh, it will require not just new technologies, new practices, but perhaps a new mindset. But uh, having a handle on how to produce uh, more food in a continuously changing environment is going to be a huge challenge. I think one will have to look at how to deal with climate change at the sub-national level, at the local level, and perhaps even a crop at a time. Giles. So climate change, I mean, it's a, it's a huge challenge for agriculture the world over, whether you're a smallholder farmer, whether you're a rich farmer in, 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 in the US. The uh, increased unpredictability of the climate and the increased extremes that we get with climate change, they create huge challenges. But if you can raise productivity, then you just raise the potential for that productivity, whatever. For instance, my own research on fertilizers, if we can have crops that are self-fertilizing so that you remove the limitations of fertilizers from there, then when it does rain, they grow to the potential of the water. Even if that rain is less predictable or it's less or more at certain times, at least you get the potential of that water, the water that's there, which I think is what it's all about, increasing the resilience of farmers to the potential of climate change. And the best way to do that is to increase the potential yield that they can achieve. And right now, they're getting such poor yields. If we stick at what we're currently at, where most smaller holophones Farmers are achieving something like 20% of the potential yields. And then you have climate change on top of that, which takes off another 10%, you know, takes that down to 10% of the potential yield. Then we're going into even greater crisis than, we're, than, than most African farmers already are. I, d- I do want to ask you if there's anything that worries you more than anything else about the, the domain that you, that you work in and, and the big challenge of food security that we have, have ahead of us. Um, Gordon, let's yeah, start with well, you. What keeps me awake at night is the big issue. We have, and I always, whenever I give lectures or classes or something, I always start with a diagram that shows all the crises in the world in a circle. You know, there's the food crisis, there's the water crisis, there's an environment crisis, there's a crisis of civil strife, and they're becoming increasingly interconnected. And the problem is that there's nobody in charge. There is John Bennington's word is a perfect storm, but it's a much bigger perfect storm than he even envisaged when he coined the phrase. It's trying to manage that on a global scale. I don't know any politician who's really stepped up to the mark and started to talk about that. We're all left to burrow away on our own area and try and make the connections. Uh, Usman, uh, uh, from your perspective, what, what problem really, uh, really niggles at you? For the first time in history, Africa has, has had two solid decades of growth, unprecedented. The challenge comes from the fact that we have a new generation of leaders who don't have an institutional memory to support them to understand what went wrong in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in terms of policies. So 
You've seen you know, countries banning exports the way they want it, whenever they want it. Uh, you've seen actually even some countries trying to control prices again. Those are the things that could take us back. So we have uh, Gordon and Usman kept awake quite understandably by the complexities of uh, politics and getting policy made and also urging us to take a long view of history. Giles Aldroyd, anything to, to add? Yeah, I think if, if, if there's anything that keeps me awake it's when I visit Africa and just see this, the disparity that exists between a smallholder farmer in Africa and what a farmer here in the UK has available to them. I mean, that smallholder farmer in Africa, poor quality seeds, hand labour, no inputs and hence really poor yields. And if I compare that to my neighbouring farms around where I live, they're, they're it's a, it's a huge contrast. You know, as a scientist, as somebody who, who knows what we can do and sees the potential of what we can do, and certainly from my own research, aspiring to create some game-changing technology so it really changed the nature of farming, I would hate to get to the end of my career and demonstrate it, for instance, that I can have nitrogen-fixing seeds and only seeing wealthy farmers benefiting from them and smallholder farmers still suffering with the same problems again and again. I don't know how we solve that problem. I don't know how we get around it, but it certainly keeps me up at night just seeing that disparity. I think it's a shock in this modern world. Thank you all for spending the time to outline the nature of the challenge, some glimmers of of solutions from everyone, um, from their own different areas of expertise. And of course, we can't answer all these questions, but thank you all for for trying as hard as you have. Giles Aldroyd, Gordon Conway, and on the phone from Dakar, Usman Badian. This is the third of four Grand Challenge debates. If you missed the first two, they are available on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast, and on the RSS feed, which you can subscribe to through iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. Next month, our final debate, hosted by Adam Levy, is all about energy. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.